Welcome to the Empower Podcast. This session was recorded live at our 2019 Empower Conference with Chief Clinical Officer Mitch Freeman and GenX Services Senior Vice President of Utilization Management, Helen Froelich. I'm Helen Froelich. I'm with GenX Services. I'm the Vice President of Case Management. And I have been in the workers' compensation case management space for the past 28 years. So I have worked, I have a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. I'm a nationally certified rehabilitation counselor. I have um, worked with catastrophic programs throughout my tenure and across the entire continuum of case management. Good afternoon, I'm Mitch Freeman, I'm PharmD, doctor of pharmacy by trade, uh, chief clinical officer for Mitchell Pharmacy Solutions. I've been in and around the PBM industry for about 20 years now. Uh, seen a lot of changes over that time. and. Uh, it's still an exciting space, though. Fantastic. Well, uh, let's start with kind of a, a high-level overview. Um, what are some of the challenges and considerations that come with managing pain? Mitch, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I think we all see the adverse consequences of how we've managed pain in the past and treated pain with the opioid epidemic. Unless you've been living under a rock, you're you're aware of the problems that opioids have caused. But pain specifically is a very difficult topic because unlike blood pressure, um, respiration rate, these things are measured, they're very objective. Pain is uh, exceedingly subjective. So I know when I was in pharmacy school, um, the question was asked, how do you know when somebody, when you've treated someone appropriately for pain? And the answer to that was, is when the patient says they no longer have pain. And so, you know, this during that time, it was you give, you prescribe, and you give people as many opioids as they need so that they are not in pain. And it was almost this idea that no one should be in pain at all. Um, as things have progressed, we've, we've really come to learn that pain is not just a biological function. So, yes, you do have tissue damage, and that causes pain. Um, but the way that the pain is perceived is much more of uh, has a psychological component as well as a social component in what kind of environment and situation you're in. And so um, all of these things come into, into play. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of difficulty in um, finding what appropriate pain treatment is and hope to address some of that today. Mm -hmm. and, and Helen, from your point of view, it, you work with a lot of people who may have been in pain for quite a long time. What, what challenges do you see? You know, in case management, we do. We we grapple with pain management and pain, chronic pain, on more of our cases than you probably realize, mm -hmm. quite frankly. And years ago, when we started realizing the opioid epidemic was critically impacting our nation, and then, of course, also the workers' compensation industry, we took some steps towards trying to understand where is this coming from and what are the consistent areas that aren't measurable but that we're told our, our injured workers are in pain and our physicians continue to um, prescribe opioids or class four narcotics at that time. Mm -hmm. And what can we do about it? So some of the areas that we found were really important and still are, our patient education, of course, but understanding what does pain mean at that moment for that injured worker. Right now, if he's at the physician's office and the nurse case manager is there with him, and he says, well, on a scale of one or zero to 10, I'm at a five. And then you go through, well, what did you do today? And how did you get here? So you start to identify some of the physical contributors or lack thereof. 
But maybe later that night, if the case manager had been in a conversation with that person, their pain might go down to a two. And this is self-reporting, right? So it's not tangible, it's not measurable, except for the way in which we are articulating the question to the injured worker and the responses coming back. So the way you ask the question in case management is very important as to how you ask it, when you ask it, and what are the other domino effects of that. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we've talked about when we were preparing is although it's not tangible, it's subjective, it's very real. It's extremely real to our patients and to our injured workers. And to think that they are faking or not um, experiencing something that's uncomfortable and is making their lives harder today is an area that I think we're getting better at and being able to recognize it, but also say psychosocial behaviors and psychosocial mental awareness and things like cognitive behavior therapy, which we'll get into a little bit later, can absolutely um, put us in a progressive way forward for these injured workers. Ellen, you mentioned opioids, um, and that's a, a big part of pain management and what's been going on. Um, Mitch, what's the lay of the land uh, today? I feel like it changes every single day, but what's the lay of the land for opioids? We've, we've made a lot of progress uh, in the industry and in a nation as a whole. Um, there's a number of factors that have really helped improve the environment when it comes to opioid use. Uh, one is we have solid guidelines around opioid use. So with the CDC uh, also included in ODG guidelines as well as ACOM, um, clear recommendations around the use of opioids and pain management early in the claim. So right after post-injury, what are those guidelines? And uh, the CDC being a national guideline, a federal guideline, it, it it's been very impactful. Um, if you look at that guideline though, it's, it's very misleading because the guideline actually states chronic pain treatment guidelines. But if you read the guidelines, they're all acute. So it talks about limiting the first prescription to a set day's supply of three to five um, below 50 MEDs or morphine equivalent dose uh, per day um, to keep somebody out of a high risk situation. And then if you clear 90 MEDs, that's considered a, a critical risk situation. So having those guidelines has been very impactful. Um, giving both physicians, I would say, as well as um, other clinicians involved, to be able to have some kind of conversation around uh, what are those limits and what they should be and what should standard therapy really look like. Um, so it, you know, it's not built into legislation or regulation, but still having those guidelines has been very impactful. Uh, a few other things in, that are more nationally and even state-driven uh, that aren't necessarily associated with the workers' compensation industry itself uh, are state limits where uh, laws have been passed to limit how many opioids, what the dose and the duration of the therapy um, of the first prescription. So um, being able to really enforce that in states uh, has been really effective. Uh, it guides... Um, guides treating physicians to try alternatives first. So try an NSAID with the patient before jumping immediately uh, to these highly addictive medications. I think a lot of education has occurred. And so this is an area that I know we've been very involved in is that uh, we see this, it's shocking post-surgery when a physician will write a prescription and they write one to two tablets of Lortab every four to six hours as needed for pain and they'll give them a seven-day supply or a five-day supply. But when you go to the pharmacy, they don't ask, well, how many do you think you need? They dispense 
like you were taking two tablets every four hours around the clock for five to seven days. And so in the physician, in the surgeon's head, they're thinking that it's a pretty limited supply. They'll take them as they need them, but they're walking out of the pharmacy with a bucket of opioids. And we all know what, what happens. And, you, you know, I opened up my cabinet a, like a year ago and found a bottle of Lortab. I was like, what is this doing here? And the reason is, is because sometimes you think, oh, well, I might need this for something else. It goes in the, in the closet. Um, you know, it only takes a teenager or a guest or someone to take that and it ends up on the street. So a lot of effective um, tools now, including formularies and that are mandated and, and state regulated. So a lot of different tools that have helped us impact use of opioids early in the claim, which has been very impactful um, for those new claims. We still have a lot of, of claimants out there that are addicted to opioids and are taking very high doses that were legacy claims before those tools were in place. And it's hard when people say they're in pain and they, they want the opioids. Uh, Helen, I think you touched on it a little bit, is how do we actually measure that pain? I mean, to be able to say you need an opioid or you maybe need something, an alternative, you have to like identify that. Tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So in case management, one of the ways that we try to make it more measurable, right? Mm -hmm. Remember, it's this is um, self-reporting and it's not tangible, right? So it's like a puff of air that you're trying to grasp <laughs> all the time, so to speak. Yeah. But really the key, part of the key is when the injured worker is taking those opioids, that they have the control over when to take them. Mm -hmm. One one method for case management is you write it down, we give them a chart, they say at two o'clock in the afternoon, I took one Lortab tablet and it was immediately following my physical therapy. Mm -hmm. So, and then every time, you know, they're keeping a journal, if you will. Think about all the things you try to do for self-care, right? If you journal things, it becomes more real. You're able to connect the dots. From case management, we're then able to identify that in our system, if you will, and we can see the pattern of behavior or the lack of pattern, right? So there could be a pattern where things help. There could be a pattern where things don't help, but you keep doing it because the doctor said this should help you, right? So then what do you need? You need patient education as well as conversations around what happens on your daytime. Did you, did you guys um, see the session where artificial intelligence read the, the face of the person and the pain level came up? Okay. I can't wait for that, right? Because maybe that will be more measurable. And um, hey, sign us up to try that out in a yeah. pilot way yeah. because yeah. that would be super. I don't know what those backgrounds are behind it, but guess what it does have to do with? Neur the neurons in the brain. The mm -hmm. neurons in the brain are tell you know, your messages travel up to your brain to say, hey, you're in pain or no, you're not. You're happy. You're hungry. Um, and these things are so important in pain management. So to be able to help someone, I might have one case that um, is very similar to what Mitch has on his caseload, but there are two different people. My person might constantly feel pain and it's real to them and it's happening and they can express it and they can tell you what's going on. Mitch might have a similar person, but they never feel the pain where they need to take the tablet. They're measuring a four in their eyes, but they're not taking the Lortab. I measure, my person's measuring a four and they're taking the Lortab and it's not taking a lot off. So these, these are real situations. And this is, um, how do you deal with that? Will you keep a record of it and you keep in touch and you talk and you watch what they're doing and you report back to the physician or the physical therapist and importantly, educate that claimant to start understanding their own body 
and what their body is saying to them during those times of heightened pain. I, I like that example because uh, we've all heard of like food diaries and, right. um, you know, how many uh, sushi rolls did I eat last <laughs> night? I wasn't keeping track, right. but it, I think shouldn't I, I shouldn't have. Um, but you, you get the idea that um, an action has an outcome and, you know, whether it's physical therapy, Mitch, um, there I know there are um, new alternatives besides just the physical therapy in those pieces. What's what's coming yeah, I mean, I, I think well, I'll start with alternatives that maybe aren't necessarily new. Um, NSAIDs have been around for a long time. They're, they're very effective in treating pain. Uh, they're obviously not addictive. There are some side effects associated with NSAIDs, uh, mainly stomach ulcers. Um, there are some warnings around uh, cardiac events, around the use of some uh, NSAIDs for a prolonged period of time. So, you know, no medication comes without risk. Um, something that's getting a lot of press lately are gabapentinoids. So you're talking about gabapentin itself or Lyrica, pregabalin. Um, these medications are really effective in treating neuropathic pain. And so it's not as if you can necessarily take someone who is in pain and newly injured and say, oh, don't give them opioids. Let's give them gabapentinoids. Neuropathic pain is really pain that uh, extends past the time that the normal injury should be healed and resolved. So if you have tissue injury and that heals over time and that is in the tissue is healed, but you're still experiencing pain, it's more of a neurogenic pain. Those nerves are still, still activated and still sensing that pain. So what these do, drugs do is they actually uh, blunt the effects of those neurons to kind of keep them, I would say, calm. So you're not experiencing the excitement that triggers those neurons that causes the pain, pain response. Um, there are some risks associated with gabapentinoids. They can potentiate uh, the use of opioids. So if used in combinations at high dose, they can give more of a euphoria feeling. Um, can, it's, it's thought that they could lead to uh, more addiction associated with the opioids use in combination with gabapentinoids. Um, and then what's, what's been funny to me is hearing lately um, about abuse of gabapentinoids on their own. Uh, because in, when I was in pharmacy school, gabapentin had just come out. And it was always thought that the dose you would have to take of gabapentin to be truly effective would be so high that it would make you feel lousy, that it wasn't a euphoric feeling, that you just felt awful. Um, so to hear that they're actually being abused now on their own is, is kind of strange, but I guess Tide Pods are abused too, and that doesn't make much sense. But, um, so, you, you know, it's, there have been some states that are even passing um, some regulations around gabapentinoids. So you spoke yesterday um, about medical marijuana um, as an alternative, possibly, to opioids. What, what are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, if you read the internet, they're wonderful and it's perfect, but, <laughs> but in actuality, <laughs> we, we don't really know a lot about medical marijuana. We do have some anecdotal studies. They're not double-blind, placebo, FDA-type trials to really tell us a few things. Uh, one, how safe are they in long-term use? Uh, what is the appropriate dose? Because medical marijuana comes in gummies and uh, you can smoke it and it's medical marijuana. It comes in liquids and oils and vaped. And so, and then what dose is the patient actually getting? So it's not, it's kind of free form use in an attempt to control the situation. Um, these types of um, regulated really close tight clinical trials would give us an idea that if it is effective, what would be the appropriate dose? How frequent should it be taken? 
to treat a certain condition. So you're maximizing the impact, minimizing uh, the deleterious effects or the, the negative effects associated with medical marijuana. If you do study review, so you take all the studies as kind of not ideal as they are, um, there is some indication that they may be um, good for chronic pain in certain situations. Uh, the jury's still out on that. Um, it's been difficult to study. It's still illegal federally. Uh, so, and, and it was basically illegal to study for a long time. Uh, those regulations are being loosened. So I, I do expect mostly probably for drug companies to jump into the game and develop their own drugs centered around medical marijuana because somebody has to pay for the money for these trials to occur. It would likely be somebody who has the deep pockets of, of drug companies. And then why wouldn't they make a medication for that that's dispensed in a pharmacy, has an NDC number, is covered by your insurance, and uh, is routed through your PBM? Well, before we all start taking edibles, um, <laughs> what are some non-pharmaceutical um, pain management strategies that, that you've seen work really well, Helen? So um, in case management, we see today a lot more non-pharmaceutical opportunities, alternatives, if you will, and we're, mm -hmm. we're thankful for that. And some of them are very, you'll, you'll recognize them when I say them to you, you know, physical medicine, so physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, doing things actively like home exercise programs, strength and conditioning, and then passive therapies. And that could be cold or hot treatments, electrical stimulation. Um, and then of course there's always their interventions, things like epidurals and injections of that sort. In addition, and one that I, I hold near and dear is cognitive behavior therapy. And it could be a form of CB, CBT, as it's known. And we've found, and the literature is still young, so I think we have time to watch this over the next several years for sure, is that the earlier we start talking about what's making you feel the way it makes you feel and having self-talk or talk with a therapist, a licensed professional counselor, a mental health professional, as well as the other treatment modalities that won't put you in a risky situation. Um, sometimes it'll work mm -hmm. and sometimes it won't. And sometimes it'll work at a certain time and not later on. So these are items and alternative coordinated therapy efforts that need to be tried, evaluated for the person, and then evaluated how did it go? And then spoken to with the physician and all the stakeholders on that case to see how we move forward mm -hmm. to that, you know, maximum medical improvement, return to work, because folks want to get back to their lives, right? And part of controlling pain may be just as important as um, eliminating it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, what are some of the concerns that, that come up with some of these alternatives um, when you talk about, like, going to a chiropractor sure. and, you know, what things pop up for you? You know, First of all, the question is whether or not these treatments will be authorized, right? So because it's not um, hard and fast rules, right? Mm -hmm. So when they're not hard and fast rules and we don't know for certain that we're going to get the outcome we'd like to get in a claim, sometimes people are hesitant, adjusters are hesitant to authorize or to do a trial. Um, so we find that as one area. We also find that they might not work. So now we've tried a couple of sessions of PT. We've tried a couple of sessions of CPT, CBT mm -hmm. and other things and things that don't work, but we have to pay the cost of whatever those sessions were could be looked at as a negative, but it's not. 
it's understanding that that's now something that won't work for that injured worker for that individual plan to help them to get back to maximum medical improvement mm -hmm. and reduce and control that pain. Mm -hmm. It's best to test. Right? I think that's my opinion. <laughs> yes. Mitch, what are, what are some of the concerns that um, when we look at these alternates, you talked a little bit about um, abuse. Are there other things that people should consider? Yeah, when, when you look at a lot of these, there are, you know, side effects of any drug. Um, when you start to get a lot of, I would say, media around certain types of medications and treatment that aren't really thought out or really well known or, or understood, you do get some um, circumstances that are unintended that pop up. So I'll give you an example is um, the focus on gabapentinoids leads a lot of individuals to believe that it's good for any type of pain. Uh, that also drives drug manufacturers to follow that trend as well, where gabapentin was perfectly fine in treating neuropathic pain. We got Lyrica that was FDA approved pretty much only for treating neuropathic pain. Extremely expensive, the you know, highest cost drug um, or comprised more spend, a percentage of spend of, of the whole industry. In fact, even um, opioids, because most of them had turned generic or gone generic by then. Um, Finally, this year, Lyrica went generic. We've seen a massive decrease in the cost for the generic pregabalin, but at the same time, the same manufacturer that created Lyrica is creating Lyrica ER. And so, again, you know, for the convenience of taking Lyrica once a day instead of twice, it's an extra $1,000 a month, and it's brand only. So it seems like every time there is a, a certain breakthrough, there's always somebody there to use that. Uh, for profit motive and ends up driving up expenses in the industry. When I was talking about medical marijuana and about how drug companies are probably likely going to figure out which compounds within medical marijuana are the most effective for certain conditions, they will be manufactured, they will be purified, they will be in pill, they will be brand drugs, mm -hmm. and they will be very expensive. And the whole, the whole thing behind that is, hey, this controls pain. It's not addictive or not nearly to the extent. Uh, no one has ever died from a marijuana overdose, um, so it's far safer than opioids. And for all of those reasons, it's going to be exceedingly expensive when it does when it does come out. Epidiolex is a drug that's used for um, um, it's seizures. used for seizures in uh, juvenile patients, uh, retractable seizures that they, nothing else will work for. Epidiolex is a CBD-based compound made by a manufacturer. It actually went through FDA trials. Uh, it's FDA approved. It's $1,800 a month. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's exceedingly expensive. Um, but that has a very limited use. You know, retractable seizures in, in adolescents and juveniles, much smaller population than when you look at pain as, an, as a, you know, as a target group for these drugs to be sold to. Do you think that is coming down the pike? Five, 10 years? I would, I would say probably five years out. Yeah, yeah, it's coming it fast. What happens is when a drug gets FDA approved, physicians don't have to prescribe it only for the FDA condition. By law, they don't have to. Now, on the insurance side, you may not have to cover it if it's not being um, written for an FDA approved condition, but physicians are free to prescribe any drug for any condition they want. Mm -hmm. um, but it also opens up the gate that now it is an FDA approved medication and it can be studied. So the very next step is, hey, we got this one through, we got the, the door cracked open, now let's find out anything under the sun that this might work for. Interesting. 
Interesting. Um, we talked a little bit about best practices on formularies and um, setting those uh, limits and, and those kind of pieces along the way that you want to check off. Um, what does the literature say out there? What are some of the best practices that you talk to your clients about? Yeah, the, the best practices for a PBM to really control and ensure appropriate use of, of opioids early in the claim and, and on into the uh, longer claims, uh, the first thing is visibility. So for the PBM to have visibility into all the prescriptions that are running through your program is extremely important. As a PBM, if you only can view what is filled at a, through a retail pharmacy and anything else that might be billed or filled for that patient is paper, that typically takes longer to come in the door. And, but if you can't see that at all, and all you see is what your patients are filling through the retail channel, you have an incomplete picture. And we've actually seen cases where the individual will go to one doctor and go to Walgreens, and that gets billed through the PBM. They will then go to a different physician, a different pharmacy that gets billed paper wow. for an opioid. So they come in two different channels for the same patient. You don't have those controls and complete visibility, you're unable to recognize that this is duplication of therapy. It's not only a safety issue, it's, you know, it's, it's a claims management issue, is that how can you manage a claim if you can't see everything going on within the claim? The same thing happens with physician dispensing as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first step. The second is um, enforce those guidelines in the program is very, very important too. Early in the claim, ensure uh, that you can't access more opioids and guidelines state, um, being able to recommend alternatives to the opioids, keeping an eye on the opioid use, especially too, to monitor as risk increases and intervene early when possible. I think the, the most important components. Mm -hmm. And Helen, what does the literature say on uh, the non-pharmaceutical uh, side? The literature is, you know, there's more research being done and more articles being published currently on the non-pharmaceutical area. And I think it's encouraging, mm -hmm. honestly. So I think what we're seeing, although there's not one silver bullet with regard to what treatments are the best treatments for the individuals with chronic pain, mm -hmm. but what we are seeing is the trying of the differentials for the person and having an overall managed case where you're not just looking at the worker's compensation injury, but also their overall activity of life, um, their hobbies, their interests, what other vitamins are they taking, et cetera. So um, from the very start, when you do an assessment, you need to look at that whole picture because those puzzle pieces, if they're missed, we might be missing something on one of those non-pharmaceutical alternative treatments that could be helpful. For example, if you have um, an addictive behavior, an addictive personality, that's really important to know whether it's for opioids and prescriptions or it's for something else, right? So um, the literature says best practices should be looked at, should be applied, but there should be some flexibility on these new alternative treatments that will not cause harm, but could cause good if you give them an opportunity to for those individuals. Yeah. And I, I liked how you talked about a holistic view of the injured worker. We, right. Sometimes we look at the list and then we say, okay, this checks the box. Mm -hmm. And But having that personalized approach, um, how do you make sure that each injured worker is getting the best care along the way when we're dealing with yes. pain? I mean, it's kind of a loaded question, it but is. It is. It's, um, it's so important. It is so important. And I bet there isn't a person in this room who doesn't know someone who has chronic pain. 
whether it's a workers' mm -hmm. comp injury or it's somebody in your family or what have you. Think about how you manage with that person. Um, we had a gentleman come up to us at the last session mm -hmm. um, with a, you know, a family member who's going through something very difficult. She's a young woman. She's two years post an injury that wasn't work-related, mm -hmm. and she's 19 years old. And what did we say? Oh, my goodness, this is going to be – this is her life now. Mm -hmm. So how do you make that part of your life and part of your mission and your purpose and not let it control you in a negative way? Well, there is no – there's no one answer. Yeah. But there is an answer of understanding that person, getting to know them, truly evaluating the assessment areas um, in case management for people – for medical case management, return to work, and um, retention of safe employment afterwards. And that includes how you manage your chronic pain today, tomorrow, and in the future. So um, there's a lot of talk, and I think it's positive talk, about cognitive behavior therapy. And I think there is a lot to be um, continued to watch there and to be talking about our mental health, the way we deal with our lives, whether we have a worker's compensation injury or not, and how we talk about what is stressing us that is negative stress that may increase your pain um, number at that time and how you know you bring that down and how do you learn to do that. Cognitive behavior therapy or self-talk or yoga, these are items that could help you in those pursuits. But that's a part, it's a tool. It's not, it's not a solution. And that benefits the entire person. So, you know, I like that you talked about mental health and there's a big push across the country, I feel like right now, about mindfulness. Yes. And are, are we incorporating some of that into managing pain? And should people, ex you know, Mitch mentioned, should people expect zero pain? Or should, is it something that they should manage? I mean, what's, right. what kind of conversations do you have? Well, and I think in case management, we're lucky enough that when we're working with the injured worker, we're actually speaking to them. We're seeing them and we're having these conversations in, in an educational level that's appropriate for them, but in a way that I'll just tell you, nobody's talking about mindfulness in their case notes, right? Uh, <laughs> but are we talking about being mindful of what you're doing and how you're doing it? You know, I'm sitting right here. I'm a healthy um, woman, and I have a little bit of pain from running yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. But it's discomfort. I know it. I know what caused it. I know how to take care of it. I'm going to stretch later, do a little foam rolling. It's going to be great. But <laughs> the reality of the situation is I didn't learn that by myself. Somebody helped me to realize because it's one particular area that always gets me on a certain mile. And that uh, one of the trainers at the gym happened to see me trying to stretch something out. And they took the time to educate me and then I put that in my toolbox. In case management, we do a similar type of situation. And when we have the luxury of working with the injured workers directly and keeping them the central place of what we're doing and how we're getting there, we're more successful that way, especially in chronic pain. And typically chronic pain is one of several diagnoses. That's a good we're point. We're not typically just dealing with an injured worker with chronic pain. That's a good point. Comorbidities as well, right? Absolutely. Um, Mitch, what about you? How do you, um, from a pharmaceutical point of view, um, make sure that workers are getting the best care that they need? Yeah, it, it really is. Um, following treatment guidelines is, is extremely important. Uh, that's the best path to resolving the injury and, and getting back to work. Um, most of what bad outcomes in our industry have been from in the past is um, not having clear enforcement of clinical guidelines, ensuring that patients are receiving that appropriate care. Um, 
And you know, how many claims have we all seen where the claim starts just like any other claim? Nothing really different. Right. Their opioid prescription goes on 30 days, they get a refill, the dose starts escalating. Two years out, you're like, where did this claim come from? It looked just like all the how others, you know, it, the, right. the creeping cats mm -hmm. or sleeping giants and and they just pop out of, in, of nowhere. And, um, you know, a lot of that is, has been from opioid use, inappropriate, um, or not utilizing other tools to help control pain and limit the opioid use to the lowest amount that we can. Uh, so I, that's really important from a PBM standpoint is uh, just the monitoring. And then when you see an issue arising, provide guidance to the claim staff. So should this go to nurse case management? Should this go to a peer review? Um, should this have, should you have a pharmacist review this file? Um, helping to guide claim staff into what the best intervention when things start to go wrong is, is very critical. And we have in our uh, portal the, the risk alerts that pop up when we start to see that behavior and then have the, what I affectionately call phone a friend where you can refer <laughs> it to um, one of these alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that to yeah. keep things on track, right? Our audience members had a few questions for our panel. Here's what they asked. The audience was curious about CBD creams. Yeah, so when I, when I was talking about the studies that aren't to, <laughs> the, talked about the studies that really aren't to the caliber that we would consider to prove out the value, um, there are, there are enough anecdotal studies out there to show that it does show promise for the use of chronic pain. Uh, again, we don't know really what the most effective use or route of administration would be. They haven't been studied to that level. Um, you know, anytime you can avoid taking something orally and putting it into your system and you could use CBD cream and it, and it worked, that would be great. Uh, when it comes to the CBD creams and things like that, what I, what I would say is that if you're using it topically and you're not actually taking it and ingesting it and it works for you, that's great. Um, but right now it is kind of a craze. Uh, you see it everywhere all of a sudden is because they did lift the ban of, of CBD. Um, farm bill, right? Yeah, on the farm bill where you can now uh, purify it from hemp instead of marijuana and that's legal. And so that's where you pretty much, that's why you see it everywhere now, where before it was considered medical marijuana, now, wait, why is this cream in, you know, in my grocery store? <laughs> it's like, it's everywhere now. But, um, which kind of makes you wonder, if you can get CBD everywhere, what are drug manufacturers going to do? Try to sell a CBD as a pill? Like, I don't think that's going to work. They're a little more clever than that. Um, they'll likely find some other compound in marijuana that is as effective or more effective, or they'll start with that compound and then change you know, one atom on that molecule. And now it's a totally different chemical and they can patent it. Because if you can extract it straight from plants, you can't own it from a patent standpoint. So it's, yeah, I think that's probably likely what's going to happen. Yes. Yeah. Next, they asked a little bit about CBT treatment. So first of all, I will tell you that I don't know that CBT costs won't be coming down. And we're looking at an average, at least the last literature I looked at said about $200 a session. So, and if you're on average going to do, if you're going to approve four or six sessions, it sounds like a lot of money, but if it works for that person and it's time limited, 
I would just, I would suggest that you take a look at that if you have it for certain reasons, right? So um, what are some of the areas? I'd say addictive personality. You know, if you've got someone who has um, various claims behind them, various, they're prone to injury. You know, they may be very um, awkward, so to speak, and things might, they might feel things more deeply. And you would know that from the employer aspect on how they um, talk right, how they are emotionally intelligent or um, not. Maybe they're very shy. Maybe they're very introverted. Um, can, do they come back to work and attempt to do things and, and use the reasonable accommodations that have been set in force for them to make um, the work site more adaptable and tolerable for them to get through a work shift? Um, those types of things are what I would watch. I don't think everyone needs C, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, so don't please don't misunderstand me. But I do think everybody um, in the world is doing self-talk and mindfulness and awareness. But it's the same thing. If you don't move your body physically, you're going to be sore when you go to work the first day. So there is a there is a, a yin and yang to that, if you will. So um, does that help? A little bit. You know, the story that um, you had in the last panel where yes. um, it, you talked about the the patient mm -hmm. self-identified as being depressed. So we I hear mean, this a lot. Yeah. That, I mean, that is that a trigger for you guys when you it hear is. that? Yes. Okay, let's get this person That's working. A, a great point. So if you were in the session earlier, if you weren't, we were speaking about an injured worker that was eight months post-injury, um, had a shoulder injury and had not been back to work yet. He was not getting any better um, self-reporting, didn't have a medical treatment plan going on, but he had an opioid regimen happening, but his pain level was still very high. And we became involved from field case management eight months later. But um, he had told our field case manager during the assessment that he didn't feel, um, he was severely depressed and he didn't feel that the, that he belonged in the world anymore and that he was having suicidal ideations. So that's a, a perfect example. Thanks for bringing it up. When someone um, can articulate that to you, that is a good opportunity to uh, approve a small set of sessions very quickly uh, in conjunction with keeping case management clearly on that. Now, this particular person, I will tell you, our case manager, they, they all have suicidal training behind them. They understand how to handle things uh, rapidly. He did not have a plan, so we were good, but he did feel very devalued in his world. And when he was able to say this to a total stranger, it's the first time he had met her, um, she knew that those red flags were pretty, pretty sufficient and pretty quick. As an employer, you know those people or your people know those people better. So there may be other flags that they can see that raises or escalates your consideration of giving that an, an opportunity. Great. Then they asked about differentiating one person's pain rating of a four versus another person's pain rating of a four. That's a great question. Um, I think you have as um, employers and adjusters and claims professionals, we have such um, ability to extract information and to identify potential alarm situations or areas where there's gaps that it's better to assume we need to help than not to when those things happen. But on the, on the pain scales of two fours are not the same value, if you will, right? Um, it, it, they wouldn't balance on a scale. My, uh, that's a tough one. So how do you know that? You, you get to know those people. 
and their neurotransmitters are speaking differently to them, right? Their messaging center um, that goes up to the brain and says, this four is really awful. One way you could do it is I know some of our case managers will say, now a four is this much pain. They might give an example and I don't have one right at the hand. Five is this. Nine is you are jumping out of your skin. So maybe putting that on the same level of whatever you identify as that pain level. I keep seeing that really cool um, video that we saw with the yeah. face recognition. One of the things I liked about that was I thought you could you could put little definitive definitions underneath each one for your claims adjusters or for your employers that say a three is this, a six is that um, to you all. And that helps you to understand where they're at. So maybe that same two people, one would say a three and one would say a six if you further defined it. Yeah, I so like I like that. And Mitch, um, people react to pharmaceuticals radically differently all the time. So um, do you take that into account as um, you're looking at risk factors? Yeah, they, they really do. Um, there's been a lot of studies into the metabolism, especially mm -hmm. of opioids, and they are metabolized vastly different among different people. Um, some people are very rapid metabolizers, so the dose that they would need to even reach the same levels of opioids within their system are different, and that's not even getting to the point of how they perceive pain differently. And so that's one of the reasons that if they're a slow metabolizer, slow metabolizer, the drug would build up over time as well. So their actual drug levels in their body could be significantly higher than someone else, same size, same weight, taking the exact same dose. Uh, now, there has been everything that's positive sometimes gets abused in our industry, um, but there are genet there is genetic testing available, uh, and they can actually determine what level of metabolizer you are likely to be based on your genetic profile. Uh, the positives on that, you would know. So if you're having issues regulating pain with, with certain medications, you would know that. But on the flip side, opioids are regulated by the level of pain being experienced as well. So it's not that insightful as you would think. Uh, and th on the plus side, you only need to be tested once because your genes never change. You need one, you know what your test results are, you have it. Um, now, whether that test is done in the group health setting and then somebody tries to order it again in workers' comp and you don't know about it, that's, you know, that's a, always um, a risk. Uh, and then the other side of it is, you know, it is, it's pretty expensive when it, when they when it does happen, and there is some abuse out there of um, trying to encourage everyone to be genetically tested for their met, um, metabolic rates for opioids. So, but it, it is something that um, that should be in the back of people's minds that this could be a consideration, and that just because they're on a certain medication doesn't mean a certain outcome, right? Thank you for joining us for the Empower podcast. We'd love to have you join us at the next Empower conference. Talk to your CSM uh, to learn more about the Empower conference in sunny San Diego this year, 2020. This is Shelly Callahan powering down the Empower podcast by Mitchell. Join the conversation and read articles on our website, mitchell.com empower.